Jerry's working up in G Kids today. He usually carries this out for me. It's a, a nice help uh, that don't have to rush so much. So I, I appreciate him doing that every week. Anybody welcome to step up and volunteer anytime you want on that. When I'm uh, when I, when he's not here, he's here most of the time. So no big deal. Just makes a little rush, right? Um, so a couple of things I want to bring to your attention. One is on May 15th, we're going to have what's called Married Life Live. And Married Life Live is just an annual event. Before COVID, we were kind of doing an annual event. We did the Art of Marriage. We did another event over in the OS. And we know that marriages just naturally head in a bad direction if we don't give them regular maintenance and attention. Because we're two broken people, full of the flesh, full of ourselves, most of the time wanting our own way, and oftentimes we clash heads about things. And then when you start going in a bad direction, it seems like it's easy to keep going in that direction. And so we feel like that the family is the critical unit to really where discipleship happens. And so if parents aren't tracking well together, mom and dad aren't doing well, then the whole family starts to feel the repercussions from that. So that's why we do this and marriage mentoring. And so I encourage you to be part of this night uh, we're going to watch some videos by Paul Tripp, have a lot of discussion here, some testimonies from our people in our own house, and it's just going to be a really, really great time. So I hope that you will be a part of that on May 15th. And then also I want to note uh, the hymn sings tonight at 6, also Intro to Grace. If you have not signed up yet, it's not too late, just come and see me afterwards if you want to be part of Intro to Grace today at 4 o'clock. And then also today after the service, the youth ministry We'll be doing a fundraiser for the mission trip, and so there's going to be a barbecue lunch right after the service. So you don't have to go anywhere except walk outside, get your food, or the line, actually, it'll be right in here. You can go through the line, come back in this room, they'll have some tables set up, and we'll just sit here and enjoy lunch together. So I hope you'll take advantage of that, because not only is it a really tasty lunch, but it's also going to be a great chance to support their mission endeavor. So a lot going on, and so be sure to check the app, know what's going on. Watch your emails, read your emails, and that'd be helpful. Let's pray, and we'll get into our sermon text today, which is John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. John 8, 12 through 20, and the band did a great job, light of the world. That's what the theme is today. And let's, uh, we're going to read this passage once we pray. God, we thank you so much for our church family. God, I thank you for each family that is represented here, God, and the way that you're working their lives. And by their attendance here today, I pray that's an indicator of where their heart is, that their heart is truly tracking after you. And God, I pray you'll give us endurance, give us wisdom, give us patience, God. We love you, and we thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. So if you were here last week, which most of you were, you know that this room was totally packed out, all right? There were so many people here, and it was a great day, and we just continued to go through the Gospel of John but one thing that in the passage that we covered last week, I intentionally didn't reference just because the nature of the crowd and so many people who were here as possibly as, as guests, and there was really a lot to get into and really wanted to give them some good follow-up, what we could do with this information. But if you look, in, if you're following along in an actual Bible, it may say this uh, connected to last week's text. It says, some manuscripts do not include 753 to 811 Others add the passage here, or after 7.36, or after 2.25, or after Luke 21.38, with variations in the text. All right, what is that all about? All right, I think it's important to address, especially for those of you who are committed Christ followers, you need to understand 
what that means. Because so many times we get questioned about our faith, and our faith is rooted in this Bible. And if you don't have confidence in your Bible, then where does your confidence come from? And so we need to be able to defend our faith. And so I'm going to go a little bit academic on you here for a second, because I think it's important to understand what they're talking about. And what it's saying is the earliest, and many scholars would argue the most reliable manuscripts connected to the New Testament, which would be the Greek manuscripts, do not include the woman who was called in adultery, who was taken up in adultery. And so many scholars argue that that story should not be in our Bibles because it doesn't appear in the oldest manuscripts. Now, newer manuscripts, dozens and hundreds of manuscripts contain that story, but the oldest do not. And you can imagine how one might think that you would go to the oldest, that would be the source, and then that would be more credible than the newer things. Does that make sense to you? And so that's the thought process. But as most things, scholars are divided, and many argue for its inclusion and really, it boils down to a couple of reasons, but the main reason was that they feel like there was evidence that this was taken out around the 4th century because, truthfully, they just didn't understand. It felt like Jesus was condoning adultery, and they were worried that women might think that, you know, adultery is okay, or really Jesus is kind of soft on it. And so the leaders at that time tampered with the Bible and removed the passage. So let me, let me just say this. This is incredible information. You need to let this soak into your head. Over the last two centuries, treasure troves of old biblical manuscripts, including like the Dead Sea Scrolls, which you may have heard of, have been discovered in monasteries throughout Europe, the Middle East, and Egypt. And as more and more of these manuscripts and these early documents are found, what scholars have found is that nothing, let me just stress that word, nothing in the Bible was lost in the process of copying. All right, let this sink in for a second. Nothing was lost. So you go back to these old manuscripts that are found in these monasteries and various places, nothing is lost. The Bible that we hold today is the same Bible and the same manuscripts that are found in these monasteries that date back to the first, second, third, fourth century. It's incredible, especially in light of all the fact of how many times these were copied. So scribes over the centuries, they have added occasionally here or there a word, oftentimes thinking that was going to help to clarify. Maybe it was because a word was unreadable. And so things have ever so slightly possibly been added. But all of that only equals to just a, a, a small fraction of what we have in our Scripture. So nothing has, been, uh, nothing has been taken away from what was originally given to us, but there are some very minor variations. And one of those variations, one of those additions, scholars believe, could have been this passage, this woman called in adultery. And the other one being when we covered the book of Mark, you may remember that when we got to the end of Mark, the ending of Mark is disputed. So those are the only two longer sections of Scripture. Now get this, Take into consideration that there are 7,958 verses in the New Testament, and only 20 verses, or so to speak, are suspect. And none of those verses impact any doctrine or major teaching of Scripture. And so if you really get to the percentage, that's one quarter of one percent. One quarter of one percent. Super small. And that's amazing. No other historical document has the kind of manuscripts and references and history that this book has. And so you can have confidence in the fact that this book is truly, truly supernatural. And if you want to know more about 
this kind of thing, which is called biblical inerrancy. Next fall, we're going to be starting a, a class led by our elders, and this class will go through Bible doctrines, Bible teaching, and it's going to be absolutely great for you guys to take a deeper dive in some of these areas. So for what it's worth, I believe the woman called in adultery is authentic, and I feel it naturally flows where it's put here in the book of John. Look at verse 11 from last week, and then follow straight into verse 12. In verse 11, Jesus said to the woman, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So go, sin no more. And then the next verse, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so see the connection there? Go and sin no more, he tells her. Then the very next time that he speaks to the crowd, he says that if you're following me, you won't walk in darkness. You won't walk in darkness. And there's just no way to read and study the words of Jesus Christ and accuse Jesus of ever being soft on sin. By no means. I mean, there's no way that he is ever soft on sin. So he says, whoever follows me, verse 12, will not walk in darkness. And in Scripture, spiritual darkness can be defined as living in rebellion against God. You're in spiritual darkness when you're living against God and in rebellion against Him and His Word. And the Apostle John builds on this theme greatly in his epistles, in the book of 1 John particularly, when he talks about light and darkness. And he gives us a lot of light and darkness contrasts. And the theme that he's getting at clearly illustrates that us as Christians, as Christ followers, that God expects his children to be fundamentally and distinctively different from everyone else. As light and darkness are opposed to one another, as opposite to one another, so too should we as believers in this world be so different that it should be super obvious. It should be very obvious. Now, I know that's not the zip code that you and I live at a lot of times, right? We, we know, we look at our lives and we think, man, I mean, I don't represent Christ very well at all. I mean, the things I say, the things I do, the way I react, sometimes I just don't do a very good job in this area. But Jesus clearly tells us that he expects us to be as different from the world as light is from darkness. And we don't have trouble at all distinguishing between the two, and so the world should not have trouble distinguishing between those who are Christ followers and those who reject Jesus Christ. And I, and I love as you dig deeper, and we're going to barely touch the surface here for a second, on this, this uh, metaphor of light throughout the New Testament. In and of itself, it's an incredible study. But John uses this to describe the nature of God. Now, why is that significant? Why is that important? Because only four times in Scripture is the nature of God described in such a ways. Yes, throughout the New Testament and the epistles, God's nature is described, his attributes are described, but you won't find anywhere except three other places where it says God is fill in the blank. And here's they are. They're, God is light from our text today. God is love. God is spirit. All three of these are found in John. We've already seen God is spirit. Today God is love, a light. We'll see God is love. And there's only one other time in Scripture in Hebrews. Anybody know what it is? God is a consuming fire. God is a consuming fire. So the very nature of God, that God can be described as light. By nature, by character, 
He is light. What is that getting at? He's absolute and total glory, truth, and holiness. God is total splendor, brilliance, and glory. And his brilliance of his light shines out of his character. And so when Jesus comes in the world, he says, I am the light of the world. Jesus says, I am that light. I am who God is. And we've seen that a lot throughout this book. But it never hurts to revisit that because it's such an amazing and powerful statement. And we'll look more at this in a second. But Jesus says the only way that we can escape this darkness that exists in this world, the only way we can escape that, and the only way that we can walk in the light, live in the light, is by following Jesus. Jesus says, look back at the verse, follow me, he says, and you will not walk, which is a way of saying live, you will not live in darkness. Whoever follows me will not live in rebellion against God. We will live in harmony with God. We will be in sync with God. We will want to live according to his will. And so when you're not following Jesus, you're stumbling around in the darkness. You're stumbling around in sin. So that's what Jesus is getting at. If you want to be on the same page as God, you follow me, Jesus says, because I'm the light, and I'm going to expose the darkness. And not only does he say that I am the light, he uses one of the seven times that he uses the statement that illustrates his, the very name of God in a very special way we find in this verse as well. He says, I am the light of the world. And this is the second time that John's done this, and we'll see five additional times. And these are incredibly big deals. These are huge. In the Old Testament, God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3 by saying, I am who I am. That is to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. And that gets at this idea that God is, he's saying, I literally, I, I be what I will be. I am who I am. And in the Hebrew, this would be something like the word we say Yahweh, even though we don't know exactly for sure how it's pronounced with the, the Hebrew letters Y-H-V or W-H. And so that's God's name. That's his official name name. And it's saying that God is self-sufficient, and he's the only self-sufficient being in the universe. Only God has life in and of himself. And so that's the essence of the name of God. And I am was such a sacred name for God in Judaism that they would not even write out the name of God. They would not even write it out. If, if you know Jewish people, they would, will write G, underline D. They will not write out God's name. Why is that? It's still true for this day. In fact, here's an example. A Jewish website talking about Judaism. Follow this. Look at the respect for the name of God. It says, this page contains the name of God. If you print it out, please treat it with appropriate respect. And, and then the bullets. The name of God should be treated with respect. God has many names in the Bible. A name should not be written so that it will be discarded disrespectfully. The most important name is the four-letter name. The pronunciation of the four-letter name is unknown, and the name conveys the nature and essence of the thing named. It represents the history and the reputation of the being named. 
And so maybe this gives us in our kind of Western minds an understanding because we understand to a certain level the value of a name, but not like they did at this time. That's why God could say, my name and my renown are the desires, should be the desires of your soul. The glory, my reputation, you carry that with you when you carry my name. So it's more than just this is the name we assign to a person. This carried with it weight. And as you see from even today in Judaism, it's still a big deal. So when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, we don't get the impact that that would have had on the people listening to him during that time, especially those religious leaders. So Jesus was identifying himself as Yahweh God. I am the light. And he says at the end of the verse 12, he says, whoever follows me will have the light of life. If you follow me, you will have the light of life. You will have the light that leads your life. So when we follow Jesus, we have the light that leads our life. In a world that just daily, honestly, seems more depressing, discouraging, from a secular mindset, it seems very meaningless, seems hopeless, seems lost in darkness. And when we don't look through the lens of Jesus, it's very easy to be discouraged by the world that we live in today. And darkness, we need to remember, cannot change its condition. Light must enter and invade into it. And Jesus says, I'm the one that brings light. And that's why I, I touched on this last week. And we, gotta, we have to remind ourselves of this so much in today's society. Because truthfully, we will not put Jesus and his light out there as the main thing to combat all the stuff we're dealing with in our culture today if we're not staying completely focused on God, His Word, and hearing from Him daily. And I advocate starting your day that way. Because the stuff of this world coming at us all the time, ideologies and beliefs that oppose God, mock God, like they're laughable, some of the stuff that's happening today, right? But yet we can't come at the darkness with our strength or more darkness. We must come at the darkness and invade the darkness with the light of Christ, plain and simple. He's the one that gives meaning. He's the one that shines the light. So you can be all the, you can say all the theory that you want to say, but apart from Christ, it's really not going to make an impact in this world. You have to bring Jesus because he's the light into the darkness and let it dispel the darkness. So everything that we do has to be Jesus-saturated. I love how C.S. Lewis worded this back in the 50s. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. That's the mindset that we have to have. We have to say, Jesus, I need you to help me see this world properly. Because I'm going to be in my own strength and my own intellect and my own just default natural fleshly behavior. I'm going to respond in ways that aren't appropriate and right. All right? We're just, we just can't overcome this flesh through our human means. We can't. Even simple things, all right? All right, so Rhonda's not here today. I'm going to pick on her for a second. All right, she's really cursed us 
by putting a candy bowl in the middle of our church office, okay? She's got these chocolates sitting there on the desk, and every day when we walk in, we walk by, and every day we have to make the decision, do we grab a few or not? And every day I'm like, okay, no chocolate today, all right? No chocolate. This stuff adds up. These calories add up. But what do I do? About 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm like, okay, it'll be all right. You know, I exercise today. I'm going to exercise tomorrow. It's okay. I have a few. I eat a few chocolates, all right? Michelle comes in and takes out my trash and sees all these wrappers laying there. What are you doing, right? Uh, I, I, I just, it's like I want to, but I don't want to. I, I, I want to stay away, but I can't help it. And that's the way that we default to the flesh in a very silly illustration, but really a good illustration for the way that our flesh can just scream, scream at us to do the things that feel right and feel good in the moment apart from Jesus Christ. And it takes his supernatural work in our life in order to see everything by him. I want to have that light of life. I do. I want to have it. Don't you? I want to have it. I want to illustrate, and this illustration will make no sense at this point, but it will when I come back to it in a minute. So, uh, Brighton, come here. I need you to help for a second, all right? Hustle up here. You run fast, so I'm going to get you to help me. All right. You're going to be coming back up in a minute, but here's what I need you to do, all right? What are these? Yeah, scales. Kind of tricky because I'm digital, but these are scales, all right? What do you use scales for? To weigh stuff, right. So you just stand on that thing, and, you know, I know at your age you're proud of how much you weigh, all right? So, whoa. 101, all right? All right, here we go. 101. Remember those days when you laid 101? But this guy's an athlete. I'm serious. So 101, all right? Now, let's, let's take another physical measurement, all right? All right, so what does this do? What are we going to use this for? All right, you've grown like four inches in the last year. It's crazy, right? So stand up nice and tall. This guy's getting tall. All right, so I'm going to just take a really good, good guesstimate here. How many, how many inches are, are you right there? All right, how many? Put that in feet. Can you do that real quick? Five feet seven. Very good. All right, give him a hand. Yes, on the spot, under the lights, all right? And so we can take his physical measurements. We can know physically what he's made of, all right? You're going to come back and help me with this illustration in a minute, all right? So thanks. Give him a hand. He'll be back. All right, so physically, we can wrap our minds around things. Okay, so as we move to verse 13 through 20, we're going to reference that. So look at verse 13. So the Pharisees, the religious leaders, said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. What's he talking about there? Have you ever been called to be a witness? You can't be a witness for yourself, right? It just doesn't work. I was called to be a witness one time in a divorce case. It was very, very awkward. I was called in. I sat there. I was like, I can't. I told the judge, I can't be a witness here. I like, I, I, I counseled with these people, and and she was like, everything you said was confidential. I was like, everything I said that I remember is confidential. And so, okay, you're dismissed. I was so thankful I didn't have to get up on the witness stand and testify. But a witness testifies about something that happened. All right. So the point they're making is you can't be a witness to yourself. That just makes sense to us, right? We understand that. You don't get pulled over by a police officer and you walk up to your, your window and he's like, drivers and registration, please. Do you know how fast you were going, sir? No? Well, you were going 65 and a 45. No, sir, I don't think so. I'm a witness to this speedometer, and it did not say that. 
Have a good day. I mean, that's just that's silly, right? You can't witness yourself. That's not credible. So Jesus says, they're saying, okay, where's your witness, Jesus? Where's something to support this? Because in criminal cases, in the law of Moses, we alluded to this last week, there had to be multiple witnesses. And so the Pharisees are saying, why should we trust you in what you're saying? Look at verse 14. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. So they don't believe Jesus' words, and from a human witness standpoint, Jesus did not have a human witness to call and to corroborate or say, this guy is God the Father, he's from heaven, but he didn't need to call a witness. Jesus is going to show he doesn't need a witness. Look at verse 15. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. All right, I know if you just read through that, you're like, huh? What's he saying? All right, the Pharisees can't comprehend what Jesus is saying because they're judging according to the flesh. They're trying to take a tape measure and say, show me the evidence, Jesus, that you're really from the Father. Show me that you're really from God. Show me that you really are who you say you are. And Jesus says, you judge according to the flesh. And judging spiritual truth by the flesh is a critical mistake. And although they think, these spiritual leaders think they're experts in the matter of God and Scripture, they don't understand Jesus and they don't understand Yahweh God that they claim to know and revere. It's one thing to have intellectual knowledge about God and the Bible, but that sure doesn't know that a person honestly, truly knows God and has a relationship with God. And so these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they were full of knowledge about God, but they didn't know God because if they knew God, they would recognize God because God was standing in front of them. And he says, you're judging by the flesh. Look at verse 15 again. I judge no one, and yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. So Jesus is saying that during his earthly ministry, he was not there to be a judge. We've looked at that back in chapter 3. He's there. He's on earth for a rescue mission. He's there to bring eternal life. However, one day in the future, God will judge everyone by Jesus Christ. And so he says, For it is not I alone who judges. Get ready. He's getting ready to introduce his witness now. He said, But I and the Father who sent me. So Jesus says, Here's my witness. My witness is my dad. It's my father in heaven. Verse 17, Jesus continues. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the father who sent me bears witness about me. So he says, you want your two witnesses, and you don't like this, but you can't, you can't find anyone to be a witness because this is operating at a different level than you can see. You're operating to the flesh. You're trying to wrap your minds around this. But he's saying, I bear witness to myself, and I call my father as a witness. So they're judging according to the flesh. All right, Brighton, I said I'd bring you back up. Come up here again, all right? All right, here's what I need you to do. I need you to take these scales and figure out how much the love I have for my wife weighs, okay? So put my love, I have a lot of love for my wife. She's sitting back there, I love her to death. I need you to weigh that love and tell me how much it weighs. 
No? All right, so tell me at least how tall my love is, okay? How, how tall is the love for my heart? Can't do it? Why not? Yeah, it's intangible. Great, great way of saying it. All right, thanks, man. Appreciate it. They are trying to take the flesh, means of the flesh. Yeah, give me my hand. That was great. Um, get, uh, take the means of the flesh and judge something that they're incapable of judging using tools and standards by which it's impossible to measure. And so Jesus is saying that he is qualified to bear witness about himself because they can't comprehend his true nature. So spiritual truth cannot be judged according to the flesh. Cannot be judged according to the flesh. So Jesus had his two witnesses that his words were true about himself, himself and God the Father. But the Pharisees, of course, still judging by, from the flesh, look how they respond. This is great. Look how they respond. They say, where is your father? All right? I can almost see them, like, smirking at one another and looking to one another and like, yeah, where is his father? Why? Because I'm sure they thought Jesus was born out of wedlock. They mocked him. They, they were snickering at him. But Jesus answers, you know neither me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. The Pharisees were full of technical knowledge about God and their law, but they were living in spiritual darkness. Lots of technical information about God. Spent their lives studying the law. Did not know God. Did not recognize Him. Because for them... As we've seen in this book, it's all about, let's make sure we measure this and make sure you're doing that Sabbath exactly right. All right, let's even add a little bit more boundary to it to make sure you don't break that Sabbath. And everything they did was about walking around measuring to see if it measured up. Human standard, a human way of doing it, a spiritual life which could not be measured in that way. And we're going to see this when Jesus says, judge not, right? Lest you be judged. He's going to say, hey, if you want to judge based on this standard, we can do that if you want to do it. And that's why we, we have to be so careful, myself included, when we start judging people's hearts and their motives. Can you, do you have the tools to do that? Do you have the means to do that? Because if you think you do, it's going to be flipped back around and used on you as well. So you better be careful. Verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. So the point here is this is a public space. And Jesus is teaching freely again. Remember, Nicodemus more than likely saved him, kept him his, the timetable of God being put off until it was ready from a human standpoint. But clearly, no one arrested him, look at verse 20, because his hour had not yet come. And we've seen that over and over in this book, that God's plan supersedes our agendas. We can think we have an agenda, but God's the one that's working it out of his sovereign will. So these religious leaders demanded Jesus provide a witness to his claims. And he says, he and his father, these are the witnesses. And the world didn't understand him, and the world won't understand us. If we're believers and we're following Jesus, no more than they understood him will they understand you. Because they're in darkness. And the Holy Spirit, Scripture says, serves in a similar capacity as a witness 
for you as a follower of Jesus. Jesus, look at Romans 8, 16. It'll be on the screen. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so God says, there's a witness to you internally that you know God and that you're about his business. And just like the Father communicated his will to Jesus and Jesus communicated with the Father, the Father communicates us by his Spirit. He bears witness to our spirit. The Spirit does that, that we are his children. And so what does that say? That says that as we're living in this dark world that's anti-God, that we have this Spirit, the Holy Spirit within us, who bears witness that we're truly the children of God. And He marks us for the kingdom of light, and He tells us to go and live in the light and walk in the light as He's in the light. And so as we live this life that He's called us, the Spirit is bearing witness. It's, it's confirming these truths. And people look and say, this faith thing doesn't make sense. It's silly, all right? It's silly. It, it, it just, it's, it's totally fabricated. It's unreal. And what we do is we say, you cannot judge the things of the Spirit through fleshly means. And so many people are trying to do that, yet the Spirit that, we, that bears witness is in us, giving us this internal confidence. Not just that we're going to heaven when we die, but this eternal confidence that says, I'm going to live as in, in the light. Because as Ephesians says, I was formerly in darkness, but now I'm in the light of the Lord. I'm going to walk as a, ch- a child of light. And when Jesus says, whoever follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will walk in the light, it means that the trajectory of our life is continuing to walk after Jesus. Sometimes very clumsy, stumbling, falling down at times. But it, nevertheless, it's a walk. And we continue to follow Jesus so we can have this light of life. He gives us a completely different perspective on everything. This verse was part of my reading plan this morning. I wasn't planning to have it in the message, but it was just perfect verse. And so I decided to put it in there. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 10. Paul writes, But as, as, as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine, what God has prepared for those who loved him, these things are re- God has revealed to us through his Spirit. Through His Spirit. The world thinks that we're silly. And sometimes we can even begin to doubt ourselves or fall into a political way of fighting this battle, fleshly way of fighting this battle, anger placed in the wrong spot completely. And Jesus begins to get pushed aside. And the very thing that we have that the world doesn't have, which is the light, we hide, we cover it up, and we don't allow that to shine. We let that shine. And the Spirit will do His work, and those who are called will come. And those who will continue to mock and reject will continue to mock and reject, and times will get worse and worse. Eventually, persecution, 
possibly even death for your faith, maybe generations down the road, maybe more, more quickly than we think. The Spirit gives us hope, knowing that God's better. His plans are better. His will is better. And that's why we can rejoice in suffering and persecution and loss, because God is better. And he brings us conviction when we stumble around, and he illuminates the truth and helps us to see him more clearly. And he gets us on our knees and says, I'm, I'm sorry for the way that I represented you, such a poor way of representing you. And he convicts us and he changes us, and that trajectory of our life continues. So here's the head application to take this with you intellectually. If you're a believer, you have an internal witness who keeps reminding you of your true purpose. If you're really a believer, you can't run away from the Holy Spirit. He keeps reminding you again and again. When you're in sin, when you're living opposed to Him, when you're stumbling around in the darkness, He just won't let you up and let you go. He keeps at it because you are here for a purpose, which is to share the light of Christ. Here's the hard application. Read Romans 8. I know that's kind of an action, but I say it because as we read this passage, it's incredible the role of the Holy Spirit as we live in a world that's groaning in this tough, tough world that is anti-Christ. What do we do? Romans 8 has so many important truths for us. And the hands application, ask for the Holy Spirit's help as you seek God. And particularly see Romans 8, 26 and 27 when you're reading. Write that down if you're writing notes, if it's not on the screen. Write down Romans 8, 26 and 27. Just really note that passage, those, those verses as you read through this. God wants us to be good ambassadors for him. You're an amb- if you're a Christian, you're an ambassador for him. You, you might be a terrible ambassador, but you're an ambassador. We represent God. We're on this trajectory. We work, but the Holy Spirit is working through us. Embrace that. Trust his work. In humility, seek him. Live in the light. Father God, I thank you for your truth that really hits us all right where we live because we know the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak so many times. And God, I pray that we'll be in your word and allow the word that we have great confidence in just to speak and the Holy Spirit to use this to just confirm in us our purpose and our calling. And God, I pray that you will make us a church bold for you. God, help us to be unashamed, to bear your name and lift you up in this culture. In Jesus' name we pray.